Amen. You can be seated. As uh, Anthony said, children, you can be released for Children's Church. And then if the rest of you would turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. If you have your scripture journal, it's at the bottom there of page 16. And it's hard to believe, but next Sunday is actually our last Sunday in Philippians. We have worked our way through the book, but if you've kind of like joined us midway through, I just want to kind of, again, orient ourselves on, on where we've been. That Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that you can read its history in, in Acts chapter 16, how there were women praying there by the, the river. He ends up there in Philippi. He's looking for these women who are praying, and, and, and there's this lady there who owns a, her own small business, and, and God draws them to himself, and, and they begin to... God uses Paul to free the, this young girl from human trafficking and from demon possession. The owners, the, those who were controlling this young girl, were furious. Paul ends up getting arrested, beaten, thrown in prison, and then there in prison, the prison guard and his whole family come to faith. And so the church is born here. Paul has a deep love for this church in Philippi. He's continued his missionary journeys. And now, as Paul wrote these words, he's sitting in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to, to live or die is the reality. And he's writing this church to say thank you. Thank you because they had sent someone to, to come and be an encouragement to send finances to, to help him in his ministry, and he's writing this letter back in, in gratitude. Now, today's passage is a little different. It was kind of hard when I first started. There's a difference, if you will, and you're going to have to like bear with me for a moment, between a rifle and a shotgun. I grew up up north hunting. It's kind of who I am. Like a rifle is a single bullet. It can, it can go along. I can only liken it to a shotgun effect because it's eight verses long, and it has five different points. Not me, the text. There's like five different topics that it's going to hit. It feels like it's all over the place. It's just like if, if you've ever like sat in a sermon, you're like, I have a hard time tracking because my mind's like, squirrel, that's okay. Today's sermon is for you because it's literally like, here's a point, here's a point, here's a point. I'm not wanting you to walk away with all five of these. I want you to think about which one of these does God want to impress on your heart? Because they're all aimed, though, at the same target. It's different points, but the target's the same, and it's this. It's to put into practice the things that Paul has already said. These aren't new truths. These aren't new things that Paul's bringing up. He's already said them. But now he's going to give this clear call, like, hey, you've heard this from me. You know these things. Now put them into practice. Which of the things have you heard in the weeks leading up to today that you're like, hey, that's really good. Oh, maybe I should actually do that. That's today. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to read chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 together, and then we'll walk through this passage together. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for this time this morning, Lord, to sing out the reality that there is power in your name. There is power in your name to unravel our tangled hearts. There's power in your name to put together the broken pieces of our life. There is power in your name to, to speak forgiveness of our past, to speak hope into our future, Lord. There is power in your name. 
And so, Lord, as we read your word, would your spirit work in our hearts to reveal where we need to be resting in your grace and in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read this together. We're going to begin at the bottom of page 16 here, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintish to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. In the God of peace, will be with you. This is God's word. I want us to see five different truths as we walk through these passages. The first we see right here in the beginning, and and it's this, it's Jesus in disunity. Because we see two ladies in the church, Euodia and and Sintish, who are having conflict with one another. And Paul has already spoken about unity in the church. Now, here's the thing I want us to imagine. Imagine we're the first century church. We're the recipients of this letter, right? And and what would happen is Paul sent this letter, and then the pastor would stand up and read the whole letter before the congregation. And so earlier on, you're sitting there, and you hear these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and this is from chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. And you're sitting there, right? And you hear these words, and and it's resonating in your heart, and you're like, yes, amen, that's true, Paul. Good word, Paul. That's good. Yes, yes, that's good. And, and, And then you're sitting there, and then all of a sudden, you hear your name, Right? It's like now I, I want to like pick on two people. Like I'm going to say like Steve and A.D., like sitting here on opposite sides. Like, okay, I entreat you, Steve, and you, A.D., can you please be reconciled? <laughs> and you're just like, oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> now there's nothing that I know going on here, so nobody's getting called out. But this is what's happening. This is the tension. Like, like all of a sudden, it kind of gets tense in the room, like, because everybody knows it. 
Now, here's the thing that, that's happening. We don't know who these two were. We don't know the exact situation of the disagreement. Most scholars would agree it's not some doctrinal issue that's happening. There's not some deep theological rift because Paul's not addressing this. What it seems to be is on a personal level of some kind, two people within the church are having division. And Paul's like, look, I entreat you. I- I'm urging you. I'm begging you. He, he's saying, w- would you agree in the Lord? That's what he's saying. Like, you get a hundred people in a room, you're going to have a thousand different opinions, right? Now, any one of those different opinions could be cause for division, for separation. But what Paul is saying to agree in the Lord, he's saying there's one reason that's greater than all the others combined of why we should be united. Even with our differing opinions, we should be unified in Christ. This is the the preached truth. So through each of these points, I have what's proclaimed and what needs to be practiced. This is what Paul is proclaiming. But now the question is, how do we put this into practice? How do we live out unity? Like, have you ever walked into church and you're like, I don't want to talk to them? Are you intentionally sitting on the opposite side? for reasons that I'm not aware of. Do you know what I mean? It happens. This is what Paul is getting at. It matters. So what do you do when there is disunity in the body? How do we put unity into practice? The simple thing is that we see here is talk to one another. (laughs) Like don't stay on opposite sides. Don't just ignore each other and assume that your personal division is not impacting the whole because it is. This was enough for the Apostle Paul to address openly and publicly in this letter. Our personal divisions impact the body as a whole. And it was worth Paul addressing. And so the first thing that it's saying to do is like, meet, like work this out. I'm encouraging you, I'm entreating you. If you have division with somebody, go and seek to make it right. And do that in the Lord. It's an interesting phrase because what it's saying is sometimes when there's division between us, there's a reason there's a division. Oh, you, you vote this way, I vote that way. Oh, I like this song, you like that song, you drive this car. Like whatever the crazy reason is that there's a division, there's a reason, right? What happens though is when we come to be reconciled and we hold that reason and we say, unless you agree with this, unless you change your mind, because I'm not changing my mind, unless you change your mind, we can't be reconciled. Paul's saying, I entreat you, be unified in the Lord. Don't bring your opinion. Remember, this is not a doctrinal issue. This is just a personal preference that it seems like these two women were experiencing in this division. There's like, be unified in the Lord. What can we agree in? Can we agree with what it says in Philippians 2 of who Christ is? That Jesus is God who humbled himself, became a servant, took on the likeness of man, laid down his life in humility for our sins in his name is the one that is worthy to be exalted. Can we hold this out and be unified hand in hand? Be unified in the Lord. This is what it's saying. If there's divisions, 
Don't assume it is not impacting the whole. And then notice what it says. Yes, in verse 3, I ask you also, true companion. That's a weird phrase. So I did like a bunch of study here. We don't know what that means. And then when I say we, I seem like me, I don't know, and scholars don't know. Some think it's a name of a person. So like my name, Stephen, means crowned one. It would be like saying, using the meaning of my name rather than my name. But we don't know that name because we're not used to it. So when translators try to translate it, they're like, are are you using a name? Are you saying the meaning of a name? Do you mean the pastor? We don't know. What we do know is this was someone inside the church. This was someone who was going to hear this letter read, who was called to come alongside these two people and help them. Look, if they meet together and they're not able to, to be reconciled, unified in the Lord, then come alongside them and help them. That's the practice. That's what's being called to here. So how do we put this into practice? Is there somebody here that you're avoiding? That, that you're, you're sitting apart from for some unknown reason? The call of today's passage is to say, go and be reconciled to them in the Lord. Put that aside. And if you need help, if you can't do that on your own, ask for help. For those sitting here, be willing to help someone. It's worth it because it does impact the whole, is what Paul's getting at. This is how we put into practice what Paul has already said. That's point number one. And then Paul continues. Notice what he says here in verse 4. I've kind of called this point Jesus in grumpiness. There's a reason why. Not just being cute, though that was kind of a little bit part of it. The verse is this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Again, I'm going to say it. Rejoice. This is something Paul has already said. This isn't like some new thought, like, wow, Paul, you haven't said that yet. No, he's kind of repeated this multiple times, right? It started in chapter 1, verse 18, when Paul's saying that as long as Christ is proclaimed, even though there's people who are proclaiming the name of Jesus for selfish reasons, Christ is being proclaimed, and in that, I'm going to rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Do you see it there? Like there's not much going on wrong here in Philippi, but there is this sense that sometimes you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. This kind of grumbling, disputing attitude, there can just kind of be this source of the grumpy Christian. This is what I think Paul's getting at. This is who he's addressing. Those who murmur, grumble, complain, dispute, just pick apart, yes, following God and suffering for it every step. And and there's just this kind of general sense of grumpiness. And he's like, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. In Philippians 3.1, he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. We heard this several weeks back, to write these same things to you. It's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. 
He's like, it's no bothering me. I'm going to keep telling you, rejoice. Why? Because it's good for you. And then he gets here at the beginning of chapter 4, and he's saying the same thing. Rejoice always, again, 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 I'm going to say it. Rejoice. It was that important to him that he goes back. So how do we put this into practice? What does that mean? How do we practice joy in the Lord? I think the always is what stood out to me. Always. Regardless of circumstances, we still have cause for joy in our lives. But what does this mean? See, I'm sure there's many beautiful, eloquent things that others could say about this. I kind of have one thought in my mind from my own experience recently of how I've wrestled with this. And as I was writing this up, I have this fear that I've already said it. And if I have, I'm sorry. The, my, my, my excuse is this. Today's my birthday, so I'm getting old. Now, some don't think I'm old. Justin's kids think I'm very old. They asked how old I was, and I was like, I'm turning 47, and their, their jaw hit the floor, and they're like, 47? They ran to their brothers, and they're like, he's 47. I'm like, okay. Didn't think it was that old, but so if I'm becoming one of those old men who kind of repeat themselves and tell the same story, I'm extremely sorry. Just grin and bear it. Just smile, nod, pretend like it's the first time. I don't know what else to say, but... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Carlos is playing along. Thank you, man. <laughs> I was wrestling with this. What does it mean to always rejoice? And here's how, how I was wrestling with it. So I spend each morning, I try to spend each morning in solitude with God. I don't always do that. But when I try, I begin with, here's my heart and surrendering that before God. And I was particularly frustrated. I pulled up my journal from earlier this month. And I was frustrated with myself because I was stuck in an emotion that I don't like, which was sadness and anger. And a, a friend of mine, I had learned recently passed away. He's someone that I did ministry with, much younger than I. And he passed away, and I don't know all the details, but I know part of it was he fell into some patterns of sin from his previous life. And my heart was just broken. And then, and then you know, this brings up thoughts of my, my own dad's passing. And, and then I'm reminded of, you know, a child who's walking through a, just their own story of brokenness, and it was all just kind of hitting me, you know? And I just felt like I couldn't get beyond it. And so, and, and I'm wrestling with this idea, okay, rejoice in the Lord always. And, and then, so the next step in my process is how do I surrender this to God? And so this is what I wrote. I, I literally wrote this. How do I surrender this to God? And in sarcasm, I'm right, okay, God, here it is. <laughs> I'm like, take it. I don't want it. I don't like being sad. I don't like being angry. I don't want to deal with this. I want joy, and I don't want these feelings. And then this is what I continue to write. But that doesn't relieve the weight because my heart holds on. And the truth is, I want to be mad. I want 
to be angry. I want to be miserable. The situation deserves it. Like the situation, I I feel like it requires it. And so I'm sitting there and I'm wrestling with God and I'm like, maybe the point isn't to not feel these emotions, but to experience these emotions with hope and without allowing these emotions to lead me into sin. And then I was reminded of Paul's words in, in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, when, when Paul wrote, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so then I'm like, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say it, rejoice. What does that mean? Like rejoicing doesn't mean It does not mean that we do not experience sorrow and anger and hurt and pain and frustration and loss. Here's what it means. Rejoicing means that our sorrow is not all-consuming. It doesn't swallow us up into a pit of, of desperation. Rejoicing means that frustration doesn't twist us into knots of bitterness. It means that our anger doesn't burn and consume us in some vengeful rage. But in the midst of our sorrow, rejoicing is mingled with sorrow and it brings comfort. I think that's what it means to always be rejoicing. It means rejoicing loosens the grip that anger has on my heart. And it doesn't become all-consuming. Rejoicing is a balm to the burn of anger. So it doesn't turn into vengeance. It doesn't just erase it. And I think that's what I want it. I didn't want the anger and I didn't want the sadness and I just want the rejoicing. But I want to encourage us of what it means to rejoice in the Lord is to allow joy in Christ to be intermingled with whatever emotion you are presently experiencing. Allow it to to redefine it, to, to walk you through it. Because there's a real peace that happens there. And we see Paul say, again, I will say it, rejoice. I think the practice here that we need to have is how we speak to one another. There is this reminding. Paul's already done it numerous times. He's like, look, I've told you, I'm going to retell you. It's good for you. It's fine for me to repeat it. And I'm going to tell you again. That's how I think we need to speak to each other. To remind one another of the joy we have in Christ. But I also want to warn you how we do that. Because with the losses that that even I've recently gone through and my mom and sister and and just that, sometimes well-intentioned people will say, don't be sad, your father's in a better place. Sounds good, but I am sad. And it's okay for me to be sad. And I'm also 
joyful that my dad is in a better place. And I hold both of these truths. Does that make sense? Someone has the, the, their car stolen. You're like, oh, don't be angry. God's going to take care of you. Is God going to take care of you? Yes. Should you be angry? Yes. Someone stole your car. Like, <laughs> there's emotions. And what I want us to see is to rejoice in the Lord always doesn't mean you're not going to have other emotions. It just means there is hope. There's a foundation beneath it that we have that untangles our heart from being consumed by those emotions that is beautiful and good. And so how do we gently remind one another of the hope we have in Christ that let there be joy even when it's yet sorrowful? That's the second point. Now that shotgun thing's going because now we go in a different direction. It says in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. This is an interesting phrase because one of the first things I do is I, I like going to the original language. What do the words mean? Because I want to understand it. Reasonableness, it turns out, is a very difficult word to understand. What does that mean? It's translated in many different ways in different English translations that they're trying to capture the meaning here in the ESV, it's reasonableness. It's also been translated as graciousness, considerate, gentle, gentleness. It's taken on trying to use different English words to capture what this word means, what it is that we're being called to. I think a, using a phrase, it would be a gentle forbearance with others. A patient gentleness with others. It's the opposite of being contentious. It's the opposite of being self-seeking. It's this, the opposite of those things. We've, we've seen Paul already say things like this. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Paul said, Do nothing from a, a selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's a sense where it's like, don't be contentious. Don't only think about yourself. Don't just have these rough issues. There's this patient gentleness that we're called to have with one another as we lay aside our own. And I think the reality is it's what we begin to see because that's right before then in Philippians 2 when it says, have this mind among yourselves like the example we see in Christ Jesus. Right? Like Jesus is set as the example who, being in the very nature God, didn't just exploit that but humbled himself, became a servant, took on the likeness of a man, became obedient even to the point of death, laying down his life for our wrongs. He did nothing wrong, but took the punishment for our wrongs. Talk about a patient gentleness. This is what it's describing. So how do we practice this? How do we ourselves practice this reasonableness, this graciousness, this patient forbearance? It says, let it be known to everyone. I think the first thing here, sometimes we can be like, I have a gentle disposition, but I'm harsh towards others. That's not really what this is talking about. Right? Like this is saying like, no, no, no. See, the inward peace we have in Christ, let that be what others experience of our disposition. 
is the first thing. Putting this into practice is, is that we would experience the grace, peace, gentleness of Christ, and then put that into experience in our relationship with others. And I think that's what it's getting to when it says the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Is that just talking about when Christ returns? Like, oh, his return's near, so you better be good. Like the, the Santa Claus song, he knows who's good or bad, better watch out sort of thing. Like, what we start to treat Jesus like that. No, I think it's really saying we're not doing this on our own. When it comes to gentleness and a patient, gentle forbearance with others, there's two words I want to highlight in your mind. And we're going to come back to this at the very end. And it's this. What is experienced is expressed. So when we look at Jesus' example in chapter 2, if you're like, I need to be patient and have the same attitude of Jesus, and you just try to express that to others, you're going to do a terrible job. In the long run, it's not going to work. It first has to be experienced. See, you, you have to come to the realization that, that I'm a sinner, that I was wrong, that I need to experience the reality of God's gentle patience with me and giving me grace for my wrongs, for the things I've done wrong. The perfect, sovereign God who created heaven and earth became so patient that he clothed himself in humanity and died on the cross for my sins. And it's not until we receive and wrestle and experience that gentle grace of God that we can have any hope of expressing it then to others. The Lord is at hand. If you're wrestling with this gentleness, with this graciousness, don't just try harder. First ask to taste more deeply of the gentle grace of Christ. And then ask that he would help you reflect that with everyone. So to whom and how is God inviting you to express his gentleness? Where are you lacking patience with someone in your responses? There's a sharpness in your tone. There's a sharpness in your tongue towards them. Where do you find that contentiousness rising up? And how might God be using his word to call you to put into practice his reasonableness, his patient and gentle forbearance. So now the fourth point. Verse six. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, can, can we just like have a little bit of humor for a moment and understand that this is Paul writing these words, Right? to not be anxious about anything. He's telling the church to not be anxious while he sits in prison. Like even earlier in the letter, he was the one who says, look, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, it's really served to advance the gospel. Remember we talked about, so what happened to Paul? Oh yeah, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was flogged. He was stoned. Like he's in prison. Like, and now he's saying, I don't want you to be anxious He's like, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. And, and to live is Christ and die is gain is what he's already said. 
And he's like, but don't be anxious. And he's actually quoting here from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You can find it in Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus gives some, some context to this, the ways in which we often worry. Jesus mentions, don't worry about what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about your body. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. And, and this isn't some exhaustive list, right? The reality is we, we find lots of things to worry about, don't we? Like, oh, I, I'm worried my car's going to break down. I don't know about my job security. Like, oh, no, what's going to happen in the economy? Am I going to be single forever? Like, marriage is hard. Oh, no, kids are on the way. Oh, no, all the kids are leaving the house. Oh, no, we're getting old. Like, we worry through the whole thing. We just find new ways to worry. And then Paul goes on to say, like, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. Let me ask you this. Where do you tend to look when you're anxious, when you worry? Like, I feel stress in my body. Like, I feel it physically. So typically, one of my responses is I tend to weight lift with my daughter. Don't always want to, but she always wants to, so she convinces me then to keep doing it. And it's, it's helpful just to work out the tension. We all look to different things. And, and some of them are healthy and some of them aren't healthy. The problem is, is when we look to something running, breathing, whatever it is that, that, that you look to. Is that where it stops? Like, what do you do with it? Because though there can be some good things we do, they're not ultimate. And, and what God is calling us to is very simple. It says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. I have to be honest, there, there's a, a part of me. I grew up in church. And there's times when like, I would just squint and make the lights like shoot laser beams at people's heads because I wasn't paying attention. Because sometimes the wording just gets like really religious. And I'm like, what does it mean? Just tell me what it means. Like, it's using these big words, prayer, supplication, okay, great. But it's like, hit me in the heart. Here's what, I, here's what the words mean. Talk to God about what you want or need with a grateful attitude. That makes sense to me. I'm just kind of a simple guy. Like, prayer is talking to God. Supplication, asking him what you want or need. Do that with thanksgiving. Have a grateful heart. Like, when you're worried and when you're anxious, don't run from God like, oh, no, he's busy. I don't want to take him my problems. He's like, talk to me. What do you want? What do you need? Tell me what you think that is. Tell me what it is that you think you need. God's inviting you to tell him. And it's saying, do that with gratefulness. Don't just come like some privileged, deserving little kid demanding something from their father. Like if a, my children came to me and they're like, give me a snack, dad. I deserve it. I just played for an hour. What am I going to say? I'm, no. 
Even if, no, I just don't even want to give you a snack now. Like, that's me. Now, obviously, God has a much better attitude as a father than I have. Let's just be clear about that. But when we come with gratefulness, not just demanding of God, but when we see what he's already given us and we bring that, God's giving us an invitation to say, come, talk to me. Tell me what you want or need with a grateful heart. And look at what it says. Let your request be known to God. Make it known. And God will give you peace. Will give you the peace of God. This is interesting. It doesn't say, and God will give you what you ask. Right? It says he will give you the peace of God. Tell God what you want. Tell him what you think you need. And he's going to give you peace. And I began to think about this. What would I rather? God give me what I want? Or would I rather him give me peace? Think about this. Because I think if we're honest, we would choose peace. Because in the, what we're asking for, in our wants, in what we think we need, is because we think those things will give us peace. Because that's what we want. Like we all want that. We just think we know what's going to give that to us. Like my life would be so much easier, God, if you just gave me what I want or need. What God gives us is the peace of God. That's what we need. But he's like, come to me with your heart. Come to me with your desires. Talk to me about it. Come to me with gratefulness. And I'm going to give you what you need. And he will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you this. What worries, what anxiousness are you carrying? Is this the one that hits your heart? And, and, and like, what if I gave you homework? What if I said, hey, today, for the rest of the day, I want you to worry as hard as you can, right? Like, I mean, like, really, really worry. Like, you can't eat lunch. Like, your stomach's turned over in knots. You feel sick. Like, I want you to, like, worry as hard as you can. Like, where you can't even sleep tonight because you're worrying so well, right? And then tomorrow morning, I want you to journal and say, how much did that change your situation? Okay? And then tomorrow, I want you to just talk to God about where your heart is and what you think you want or need and see which one works better. Or if you want, you can just skip the assignment for today and jump right to the talking to God. Do you see what I'm saying? I, I pray you, you hear my sarcasm <laughs> and all of that and don't actually like take, don't take it too literally. Like, <laughs> like, hey, I tried, Pastor. I didn't sleep at all last night. Your advice stinks. Like... <laughs> That's the point. Sometimes I think we just need to be reminded in a humorous way that like, because we really think. Like, no, but, but I can figure something out. <laughs> and we can't. And what we really long for is peace. And we think we can manufacture that. But we're invited into something better. What do you need to go to God with that you're trying to carry yourself right now? That's the point. So the fifth and final.
Finally, it says in verse 8, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I call this Jesus and crassness. Here's why. What's the opposite? Like, what is crassness? What does it mean to be crass as a Christian? It's rude, insensitive, having or showing no understanding of what is proper or acceptable. It is a callousness. It is crude. It is bawdy. This is what we've heard Paul talk about. He's already called the Philippians away from crassness and to what is honorable. We heard this in chapter 1. When Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, and he says, it's my prayer that, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. See, this is something that Paul has already called them to. And now he's saying, I want you to practice it. I want you to put this into practice. Here's the command, but now how do we do that? How do we walk to love, that love among us would abound more and more? How do we grow in our knowledge of God? How do we discern right from wrong? And it, it uses this fascinating phrase. This is, I love studying the scripture because there's this phrase, think about these things, Right? At the end of verse 8, think about these things. Now, this word, to, to think, it literally means to reconcile, to reckon to account. This is, a, it, it's almost like a mathematical phrase. Think of your checking account, right? Like if you were to pull open your, your banking app, right? You're going to say, okay, my paycheck was deposited here. We've had these expenses come out. How much is in the bank account? Right? This is a simple math, addition, subtraction. You make deposit, you make withdrawals. What's left? This is the kind of language that Paul is using here when he says, think about these things, that you can't withdraw what you haven't deposited. Right? Like if you want to go to lunch today after the service, you're going to pull open your bank account and you're going to be like, do I have enough money to go out? Or am I going to have a peanut butter and jelly at home? Right? You're going to make a decision because either you have money in there or you don't have money in there. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, think about these things. The same is true of our hearts. You can only withdraw on what has been deposited. And so if you deposit lies masquerading as truth. If you deposit in your heart and mind things that are dishonorable, if you deposit things that are unjust, impure, crass, unworthy, inferior, and then you seek to withdraw godliness, there will be nothing available. Sorry, no funds available. This is what Paul's saying. You need to deposit what is honorable, truth, according to God's word, not the world. You need to deposit in your heart and in your mind things that are respectful and 
honorable. You need to deposit things that are, are just, meaning people get what they deserve. If, if they've done well, they get a reward. If they've done something wrong and bad, they get punishment. That's justice. Pure, holy, in relationship to God. Lovely, beautiful, attractive, good. Think on those things, things that are commendable, things that are worthy of praise, looking at creation and saying, isn't God magnificent? Looking at the works of hands of one another and saying, isn't that good? Isn't that commendable? Think on those things, things that are excellent. And then when you go to make a withdrawal, like Paul calls us to in Philippians 1 verses 9 and 10, that it's my prayer that love would abound more and more, we're withdrawing from the things we've deposited in our hearts and minds. Then our knowledge of God is growing. We're able to discern right from wrong because of what has been deposited in our heart and mind. And then we will be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. That's how we put it into practice. So what are you depositing in your heart and mind? Like, that's the clear application. Like, when you think about the books you read, the the, the news articles you choose to read, the social media that you consume, the movies, the TV shows, the, the, the music, are you trying to withdraw from your life something that you are not depositing? And then you're wondering why? Think about these things. Put them to an account. What are you putting in? Because that is what you will practice. So here's the conclusion. Five very different. I've said it at the beginning, kind of this shotgun of truths. Five very different. He just lists out. I want you to consider one of them. Is there one that God's kind of like, mm, it kind of just made you a little uncomfortable because it hit a little closer to home than you would prefer? That's the one I want you to think about, okay? We talked about disunity. We talked about grumpiness, contentiousness, anxiousness, crassness. Which of these hit you? And then I want you to hear the call of verse 9. <clears throat> to step out in faith by putting into practice the things you have learned and received this morning. That's what it says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Put them into practice. You're not going to get it perfect. That's okay. Which of these are you being called not just to hear and be like, yeah, amen. Like, did you hear your name in one of them? We are just like, oof, heard that. (laughs) What does it then look like to put it into practice? And this is where I want to come back to those two words to remind us of. Do not leave here and just try harder. Do not just leave here and say, okay, I, I need to then just be unified. I need to just do this. I need to do this, this. I want you to begin by saying, have I experienced the beauty of the gospel, as said in the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, 
how have I experienced Christ in my life in this way that I need to grow? Start there. Where do you need to experience that? Meditate on it. Of who Christ is as the living God who humbled himself, became a servant to the point of death. Let the reality of who he is and what he has done so transform you that then when you come and you say, let me express that to others, there is this renewed fire in understanding of who you are in Christ because of what you've received. That's going to be extremely, extremely different than if you just leave and try to be better. Let's pray.